This is Star Talk All Stars. I'm your All Star host, Emily Rice. Joining me tonight live in the studio is my comedic co host, Harrison Greenbaum. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Hi, thanks hey. for coming in. I love that necklace. Thank you. This is my little space shuttle. And your dress, it's like it's flying through the fabric of space time itself. The fabric of space time, as we are right now. We are not in a space shuttle. I I love how this is going to eventually be like an Apollo thing. Like, this is a collectible, right? Like, the space shuttles don't exist. They exist. Like, young kids are going to be like, what is that? Yeah, exactly. They're going to have the the Falcon Heavy or the SLS or whatever, and they're going to be like, oh, that old retro thing. My space camp sweatshirt, because I went to space camp as a kid, has that shuttle on it. Yeah. I ate a lot of Tang. (laughs) <laughs> I did a fake spacewalk. Oh, wow. But then they give you a fake space mission. So you like get a script and you like simulate a whole mission. And I was the botanist. So I had to take care of plastic plants. You were the Mark Watney. The botanist is very important. It is in real life. But <laughs> when you're faking it, I just had to look at it. They were like, is 10. the plastic plant okay? And I'm like, yeah, it's plastic. <laughs> this plant's fine. Aww. I want to be the captain. <laughs> Everybody wants to be the pilot. Yes. Scientists are very important. I was going to Captain Philip be like, I am the captain now. <laughs> this is space mutiny. <laughs> awesome. So we're going to do a bunch of cosmic queries tonight, right? Yeah. We've got all kinds of, we've got Astro 101, and we might have a couple extra about dark matter. Although I can I can almost tell you that the Astro 101 questions, nobody's going to ask about like Newton's third law. Everybody's going to ask about <laughs> black black holes, dark matter, dark energy, that's my prediction. Have you read these in advance? I know, right? There are a lot of those. I've taught a lot of college as- astronomy. So let's talk. Uh, let's start with one of our uh, Patreon members. Yes, thank Frank you. Frank Kane from Orlando, Florida. Disney. Um, is there any mer- actual where Space Camp is? Uh, oh. Close, close to Orlando. Yeah. Because um, I know that after we went to Space Camp, we then went to Disney. <laughs> so that's why I know that. Is there any merit to the idea that dark matter... Well, let's... Tell people a little bit about what dark matter is. is oh, there, yeah. There people listening who might not even know what dark matter is. I think Star Talk people will mostly know what dark matter is. But just in case you needed a refresher, it is kind of confusing because we kind of call everything dark that we don't know what it is. And so dark matter is this thing that we think it has to exist because there's more gravity in space than we can than of the stuff we can see. And Neil would argue that it should be dark gravity. The matter yeah, is like, almost a misnomer. Yeah, except that we do think it's matter. That's the weird thing is that I think we're calling it dark matter because we still think it's matter. Like, we still think it's stuff. So it's so we, we know that it exists, that it has to exist because of the gravitational influence that it has on other things. Basically, we see motions of things that need more gravity in order to not fly apart, and we don't see that mass. We're not able to measure enough mass in the stuff that we can see, the stuff that emits light or absorbs light or reflects light or scatters light. There's not enough mass there. And so the extra mass that we measure from the gravity, we call the dark matter. And and we do think it is matter because matter is what curves space-time and, and causes this gravitational force. And so we do think it's stuff. It's like a Republican that cares about gun control. There is polls and all this evidence says it, it, it must might, exist. Yeah. It, it's affecting all the calculations, oh, but we can't we directly observe it, it in the wild. Yeah. 
All right. Uh, so Frank's question about dark matter. Is there any merit to the idea that dark matter may be the gravitational pull of matter from a nearby dimension we can't see? Woo! Is it even part of our dimension? Yeah. I think the answer is that it does have to be part of our... It definitely has to be part of our universe. Because by definition, our universe is everything that we can see, everything that we observe. And dark matter is very... Not directly observable, but kind of indirectly observable in that we 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 um, we measure its influence. And so if it's outside of our our dimensions, if it's outside of our universe like that kind of puts it outside of the influence that it should have. And so I still think it has to be within our dimensions. Um, It some people think some scientists think that it it could be not actual extra stuff but that we don't understand gravity and there's this whole kind of mond theory that's called modified newtonian gravity to say that um that if we modify the way that we understand even newtonian gravity but still different from general relativity that that might explain the the observations that are usually attributed to dark matter but that's kind of falling out of favor and the vast majority of scientists do not think that that's really a possibility and that we do think the dark matter is stuff and stuff in our universe in our dimensions like it's it's it almost might be a boring explanation that it's just a particle that we haven't been able to detect yet but we're getting there we we might be able to detect it soon it's and it's kind of like when you're like you're trying to cash out the register at the end of a shift and you're short and you're like ah the oh, difference is dark matter yeah 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 it's all the socks that it's like the one sock that always gets lost and that becomes dark matter it's the stuff that disappears at the bottom of the closet i think i think that's on Family Guy or something like that. <laughs> Where the sock goes. Yeah, I feel like this has been used as a joke before that it, you know, or into a black hole. But and, and black holes could potentially contribute to dark matter, but like still very different. Like you know, a black hole is we can measure that mass, we can see its influence. Like there's not enough black holes to be dark matter. The dark matter is like a different distribution than we know where the black holes are. Hmm. And so we should cool. give a shout out to Vera Rubin, right? She's, yeah, so, she's the discoverer of them. Yeah, Vera, Vera no Rubin. No Nobel Prize, though, which yeah, is... No Nobel Prize. She Shonda, as my grandmother would say. Yeah, she, she just passed away um, Christmas, I think, a, a year and about a half ago. And so the so she, like, people kind of postulated that dark matter might exist, but she was the one who made the observations of, of clusters of galaxies. And those clusters of galaxies were moving much faster than we expected. And so part of that reason why they can move that fast but not be flying apart is that dark matter. And so Vera Rubin really did a lot of that important scientific work. Awesome. All right. Let's see a uh, general question. What else we got? Uh, let's see. Uh, a lot of black holes, as you predicted. Yeah, this guy, his name is in, I think, either Greek or Russian symbols. Oh. So there's no way I could read it. Um, Cyrillic? I think so. It's a weird... Uh, that's a weird... Oh, oh, that's Greek. Yes, Greek. I do recognize Greek because I'm a physicist. I, oh, there you go. Yeah, we we like we used up all the Greek letters and various different things. It's all Greek to me. <laughs> all right, yucka yucka. All right, Facebook. He's from Facebook. I can read that. When Stephen Hawking pouring out. Oh my gosh. R.I.P. Stephen Hawking uh, said that black holes emit information. What did he actually mean? <gasps> I don't understand the definition of quote information when it yeah. comes to this example, to be honest. So he doesn't even understand his own question. Yeah. And then he wrote, thanks. <laughs> this- eating a Slovakia, some, some kind of y- gyro. <laughs> There's a bunch of things that we mean by information. So one of the things that we mean by information is like particles. Really, it's any kind of it's a, information can be light, information can be 
energy, which light is also a form of energy. Um, one of the things that black holes emit that, that Hawking kind of realized is what are called virtual particles. So the idea is that when things get close to a black hole, it gets very energetic and kind of particles can be popping in and out of existence and, and things can be changing like that on a, on a kind of very, very fundamental level. And so if you have two particles that kind of are, are popping in and out of existence, they, be, they become one and then they become two and then back to one. If one particle becomes two and then one falls into the black hole but the other escapes, then you can observe that escaped particle and it looks like it came from the black hole. But it really didn't. It really was half of it fell in and half of it was w escaped. And so that's this, this so-called Hawking radiation that was kind of named after him. Um, another way that, he, that Hawking thought about black holes in terms of um, information is, has to do with entropy, which is now I'm going to start talking very slowly and hesitantly because it's like <laughs> the, the edge of the physics that I understand. This is not Astro 101. This is Astro kind of 301 maybe. But Hawking really did introduce this How idea. How far do the numbers go? Like, oh, yeah. It was, I you you teach it like a kind of a 101. Yeah, right? I usually teach like in a 101 class, but it really depends on the on the college. Is there like a 901 or a 1001? Or like, does it go, do the numbers just Maybe keep going up? graduate school. Yeah, okay. it depends. Sometimes even the graduate classes are like, you know, 100 again. It really depends. It's just, gotcha. a, it's just a license plate number, right? Just a catalog number. Right. Boring. Um, but... The, the information, so the, the entropy, this idea that of disorder in the universe, Hawking kind of tried to understand black holes in terms of that, which at first people thought that shouldn't be possible because having entropy is this quantity that's like a, it's like a physical quantity that a system can have. But in order to have an entropy, a black hole really should also have a temperature, which it doesn't really because we can't describe it like that. But it turns out that we still can describe it in terms of entropy. And so that was something that Stephen Hawking really kind of pioneered and that there's like an information content and entropy to a black hole. And, and we can describe that. That's about as much as I can yeah. say about it. But the best, like, the best Simpsons story I ever he heard was about Stephen Hawking. The, apparently, so I love the fact that Stephen Hawking was on The Simpsons. I also read an article today about how apparently Stephen Hawking legit loved The Simpsons. Oh, yeah. And so even I, when he, I mean, the fact that he let himself be on it and like, be, you know, kind of butt of like Homer calls him Larry Flint. Yeah. Like in that first episode that he's in and he has like a boxing glove that comes off of his right. wheelchair. But the best. So I met uh, Mike Reisman, who's this wonder. He's executive, one of the executive producers. So yeah. I'm, I'm going to be butchering one of his stories. Oh, good. But they they called Stephen Hawking, said, we'd like to do you on the show. Uh -huh. And he's like, I'm doing the voice. <gasps> and they were like, no offense, but you don't have to. Like, we can probably just fake your voice like we can fake that yeah right and he's like no i'm recording my own voice so Stephen hawking comes to the simpsons office and they're on the third story walk up and mike gets to his office and his assistant is like Stephen hawking is here and they're like oh is he with his assistant and they're like no oh my gosh so he walks in the office and Stephen hawking is there and to this day he does not know how Stephen hawking ended up on the third floor of a walk-up building with no apparent assistance oh my god that's how, maybe that's where the idea for the helicopter propellers on because i think his wheelchair on the simpsons also has like helicopter <laughs> propellers and he like flies away at the end maybe i've heard that he also like that Stephen hawking pitched jokes to them yeah, and he literally recorded his voice like they put him yeah. in a voice booth he typed up the dialogue although i hope he copied and pasted some of it because it feels like a lot to retype but then and he uh so that that's really him oh i love it yeah it's such an awesome like it, you know for for somebody that much of a genius to also have that much humor and kind of humility about you know his role and his fame is just uh 
I miss him already. It's such yeah. a such well, a huge rest thing. in peace. Uh, I'm I'm sorry that so you butchered the Simpsons story. I butchered the physics. Like now we're kind of even. Yeah, yeah we exactly. Let's see what else we got to go on. Um, oh, David Pfeffer. I hope the P is silent. Otherwise, he's Pfeffer. <laughs> As galaxies gradually move farther apart from each other with the expansion of space. Mm-hmm because we're still exploding out from the Big Bang, do they, in contrast, condense into themselves, or do they separate further? Ah, they keep... They they, they do separate further. Like, they do... So, the galaxies themselves aren't affected. This is something that is definitely hard for people to wrap their heads around, is that the the moving apart of the galaxies is really the galaxies kind of riding the expansion of, of space-time, like you described. But... The galaxies, because they're held together by gravity, they kind of, within a galaxy, you don't feel it. Like, we don't feel it. The solar system doesn't feel it. We're not going to be ripped apart by the expansion of space-time because the the gravity kind of keeps us together. And it's really only at very, very large distances where you don't have as much stuff that the the expansion dominates. I feel like that was the typical, like, get released on the college question was, yeah. what is it expanding into? Yeah, and that's at, like... We don't know, man. <laughs> like it's you know the universe itself is expanding, and is, thinking about what could be outside of that is potentially the multiverse. Or like speaking of Stephen Hawking, Stephen Hawking believed in the um, the like many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, which is really exciting, and definitely these multiverses and the fact that you know when we when we collapse a wave function or make an observation that that might actually create two different universes or multiple universes where every possible outcome kind of continues on in its own universe. That's also kind of mind blowing quantum mechanics. That's amazing. I've seen enough comic book movies to know that the multiverse is definitely possible. Yeah. Right. I like it. I've seen evil, evil Superman. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get into a little bit more dark matter. I guess we have Xenon. Um, That's a very good science name. Yeah. Xenon Budsy on Facebook. Double gas. Yeah. Uh, Is dark matter evenly distributed throughout the universe or do some galaxies have more dark matter than others? Yeah, this is the thing that we know. We can literally map dark matter and dark matter is definitely not uniformly distributed. It's kind of it's it's a little bit weird. We We usually say that dark matter exists in halos which to me is a little bit of a misnomer because halo is like the, you know, the, the round, the kind of ring thing, but a halo to an astronomer is much more spherical. And so the dark matter usually exists in this big halo around the galaxies. And it kind of doesn't depend on, it doesn't matter what the shape of the galaxy is because the galaxy is really like a tiny little thing in the middle of the halo. And then the halo is this big spherical thing of dark matter surrounding it. But we can, we can map that. It's so cool. Is there any near us? That's the thing is that I would have, uh, like, I'm not sure. I don't think there is. I think people have tried to measure dark matter nearby, like the dark matter content of the solar system or something like that. And I think it's pretty well ruled out near us in large amounts. Like, we can explain the the orbits of of everything in the solar system you know we need general relativity which is the curvature of space time but we don't need dark matter we don't need extra mass in order to explain the motions of of things in the solar system or of things even stars nearby only of of galaxies and of clusters of galaxies do we need the dark matter to explain the motions and so there there probably is dark matter nearby but it's probably very very little dark matter uh, yeah, well, this is this is an interesting question while we're on dark matter uh, uh-huh. that this is fun to answer. Tyler Ronaldson wrote, 
what is the most laughably outrageous hypothesis you've heard about the nature of dark matter? <laughs> I almost want to say the modified gravity, but that would there are some scientists that very, very firmly believe in the modified gravity still, and so I don't want to, like, that. it's important to have... Let me just spit out his chamomile tea. He's like, <laughs> adjusted his pipe. <laughs> it's very important to have this kind of, this uh, back and forth and this discussion in science. Um, like, pretty much, like... The, um, maybe the other dimensional thing is a little bit wacky. Like, that's the first <laughs> time I've heard that, really. Um, but really anything. I mean, the fact that we've almost invented a new particle. So I think the the best possible explanation for dark matter so far is called the axion. And it's kind of cool in that it was a, a little particle, like literally a very, very light, very low mass, weakly interactive particle that was invented for like a particle physics, not even a particle physics, particle physics, but a quantum chromodynamics thing. I think that's what the QCD stands for. And that's all <laughs> as, as much as I'm going to say. Um, but this, it was kind of predicted by that theory. And then astronomers said, okay, that might actually work for dark matter. And so now they're trying to directly detect that particle and its properties, its, you know, its energy, its mass, and try to figure out if that particle could possibly be the dark matter that we're looking for. But it's super hard to observe if even possible, yeah. right? Yeah. It can pass right through us. Yeah. It's one of these things like neutrinos, but neutrinos were also like very, very hard to detect until we figured out how to do it. And that was, you know, filling mines full of dry cleaning fluid. And then we detected <laughs> neutrinos that got a Nobel prize. Like, and so it's the same type of thing where we have to, you know, the, the kind of the theory keeps pace with the observations and makes predictions and then we test them out. And it's, I think the wildest thing about it is that it's, it is actually practical and it's possible and it's doable possibly within i want to say for dark matter i feel like this has been done before but like you know a decade or so wow i feel like vera rubin kept saying a decade and then 10 years later she would say another decade i think they'll find it another decade but it really is now it's it's a kind of a particle physics problem of detecting this new particle um, but it's a very low energy particle and so it's not a cern particle collider problem it's like building the right detector so it's, i think it's very similar to the neutrino problem as, as well as i understand it Cool. That I think that would hit on somebody else's. We we hit is dark matter really a tangible thing that we can yeah, interact the, with it. That's the thing is that go. we think yeah, weekly interactive. It's going to be hard to find, but I do think we really can find it. It's going to be like this is what I love is that maybe eventually it will no longer be called dark matter, or even worse, we'll keep calling it dark matter even once we know what it is, and that'll confuse <laughs> generations of college students to come because that's what we do. We don't fix our mistakes. <laughs> so we have to wrap up this segment, but stay tuned because we'll be right back with more of your questions about astronomy and the universe. Welcome back to Star Talk All Stars. I'm your host, Emily Rice. Joining me tonight is my comedic co-host, Harrison Greenbaum. Hey. And tonight we're talking Astronomy 101. Yeah. Um, right before the break, you mentioned uh, something about dry cleaning fluid in a mine. <laughs> and uh, I'm still very curious that about go, that. Right? Yeah, I can't let that one go at all. It's it's also, so so the dry cleaning fluid in the mine is how we, so we were talking about dark matter. And we were talking about these kind of hard to detect particles. And neutrinos for a little while were this very hard to detect particle. We kind of thought that they should be um, existing because we knew that the, something had to carry away uh, well, either they're not 
charge because they're um, but something had to carry away like maybe a little bit of mass from the nuclear reactions that went on in the sun in order to the the nuclear reactions that are the hydrogen fusion that power the sun and so these these particles were predicted but we didn't know how to detect them and then they you know the theorists would work out okay they should interact with these things but the thing is that they're they're so weakly interactive they have a is um, in physics it's called a very very small cross section and so it's like if you have two people and you walk by each other on a New York City street, it's like how far out your elbows are, like how, you know, how big your umbrella is, how likely you are to knock. Uh, people who hold hands on the street yeah. drive me crazy. I get it. You're in love, but get out of my way. Yes, they have a big cross section. And then, like, let's say, like, the um, people on delivery bikes have a small cross section. You know, they can get through crowds. And you're like, you're like, woo, like, I almost got hit by that, but I didn't. And it just kept going. So that's like <laughs> okay. the neutrinos. Right. So they just like there's literally neutrinos flying through us right this minute, right this second. Like, there's tons of them. Um, but in order to detect them, so be, but it's still, a cross-section is still, like, a probabilistic thing. And so collisions do happen. But in order to make them happen on an observable time scale, because you can't wait really long, you instead have to have a large number of cross-sections. And so that's the idea of putting, it, for some reason, the dry-cleaning fluid was the fluid that they used. But <laughs> there's a joke about the, you know, the scientists that ordered all the dry-cleaning fluid would then get ads in the mail for, like, a bunch of hangers and right. stuff like that. <laughs> and so one of the first experiments, they would take mines because it was this underground thing. You also want to make sure that the signal's not coming from anywhere else. And so uh, um, just take an old abandoned mine and fill it with dry-cleaning fluid. And so this was one of the first <laughs> solar neutrino detectors um, that was built. And they did end up detecting uh, what happens. So you, so the neutrino then interacts with the, um, the atoms in the dry cleaning fluid, and then you have, I think, usually like photovoltaic, so like light sensors. Like it, it, it creates a little bit of energy, and then you detect that energy around that uh, around the edge of the mine. Plus, their lab coats were so white, <laughs> very clean. <Yeah. laughs> um, and then, but that like this detection, it worked, and so they they proved the existence of the neutrino. They proved by by extension that it's nuclear fusion powering the sun. It was a huge, huge thing. It won the Nobel Prize, um, and then and there's new ones like it's not a solved problem there's actually three different flavors of neutrinos and they oscillate between the three different flavors and so actually in cosmos one of my favorite scenes of the of neil's cosmos that our benevolent overhost i call him for star talk all stars um it, he's literally in uh dinghy like in a japanese neutrino detector that's called super kamiokande it's, and it's like, and the, the detectors are all around him. And so when I got to chat with him about Cosmos, I was like, were you in there? Like, he was like, I was really in a boat, but it was a green screen of the detector. And I was like, darn. Like, <laughs> I, we, we watched it at a bar and I was like, he was on a boat. I, I was just one of my favorite <laughs> scenes. So he, he does explain it in Cosmos a little bit. Um, and it's amazing. Yeah. And it's just a, like a new particles, a new understand. I love how the... the how did they convince... Who Did they buy the mine? Or do you have to convince oh. the city, we're not crazy, we just want to put dry cleaning fluid in a mine and measure these particles <laughs> that, that we think exist? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how they got to do it. I mean, I think they did have permission and it wasn't just like sneaking it in. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I'm just wearing my biggest coat. Um, yeah, I'd have to... Uh, the, probably the Wikipedia article, article is pretty good. I think it was the, the Homestake 
mine. I feel like it's going to be like the next Sorkin film. It's going to be a lot of really smart <laughs> it would dialogue. It probably be a really good movie. Fluid. Oh, and there is a, there's a book about it by uh, an astronomer named Ray Jaryawadharna who writes really good books. And it's called, I think it's called Neutrino Hunters. It's his book. Yeah. And it's about the whole history. It's a fantastic story. And I love how it combines like, you know, kind of elementary particle physics with our understanding of the universe. Like, I love how those things go hand in hand. From the smallest to the largest. Yeah, exactly. Do we have more questions about the smallest or the largest? Let's or see. Um, well, this one... It, Aliens? This one, no, this one I like. Uh, John Marcus, thus spoke John from Twitter. Because <laughs> we're talking about dry cleaning fluid, which has a smell. I'm sure that mine okay. smelled weird. Does space have a smell? Oh, yeah. I think it does. Why did we... I'm, I'm racking my brain to try to figure out... It, it we wouldn't be able to smell it because we'd no. have to be in a suit to be outside in it. Yeah. So you would just, space would smell like you not taking a shower. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it is like, but, the, but the smell is literally like the particles that get in our nose, right? And so based on the particles, based on the atoms and the molecules that kind of are formed and exist in space very naturally, I think we can say what the universe smells like. I want to say raspberries for some reason. Really? But I can't remember why or what. It it must be the molecules that exist out there. Like most, and this is another kind of common misconception is that space is totally empty, but space is, of course, not very, it's much more empty than like the air or the atmosphere on Earth, but space is still not entirely empty. And so I think the, the smell of raspberries might be coming from like what's the most common molecule that exists out there in space. Wow. Yeah. I'm surprised you don't see that in a film where somebody right before they die, they would should probably just be like, raspberries? They smell raspberries. That would be very nice to put it. If, if it is raspberries that I'm remembering right. That's pretty cool. I that's That was an unexpected answer to an unexpected question. <laughs> I love everything about that. Uh, Aaron Lingenfelter from Facebook wrote, if we were able, how much time and space would we have to have without protection to encounter a toxic amount of cosmic radiation? Ooh. And does it build up in our body and eventually become toxic? I so the the I have good news and bad news. I think is that you don't necessarily so before or after you sense raspberries. Yeah, you, if you smell raspberries, it's already too late. Um, <laughs> like you're gonna get the cosmic. Ra- I mean, you get destructive radiation even while you're on Earth. And even like every airplane flight you take that you go a little bit higher up, that the, the, the high energy particles come a little bit further down, is that much more high energy radiation, that much like tiny more of a percentage that you're going to get cancer, you know, from that instead of from, from other things. And so you don't necessarily need to be outside in space. Like that's the thing about this high energy radiation is that it, it finds you. Like it comes to you no matter where you are, no matter how protected you are. And really the protection, the Earth's, atmosphere and the Earth's, really the Earth's magnetic field is the best protection. And so once we get further above the Earth's atmosphere and further through the Earth's magnetic field, then we become more and more susceptible to that radiation. But there's there's really no escaping it, no matter what. I think that's Is it worse up deal. there, though? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you don't have the, all that protection that Earth is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the atmosphere of Earth pr- provides a lot of protection. I mean, that's probably why we're here to begin with, is that, that we have this nice atmosphere on Earth that, that prevents these high-energy particles from getting through... Except we're slowly destroyed. Yeah, we're going to destroy Oops. it. Oops. <laughs> uh, doesn't everything feel better without protection? <laughs> All right. Uh, there's a lot of black hole questions. Um, I knew it. Let's see. Uh, something that's not. Oh, Paul Kragenbrink from Facebook. What advancements are on the horizon that will help us better analyze the composition of exoplanets? Ooh, now, yeah. 
exoplanet question. Um, the James Webb Space Telescope is going to be huge for exoplanets. So we talked about it a little bit where the James Webb Space Telescope is kind of this next generation Hubble Space Telescope, only it's entirely different from the Hubble. <laughs> it's just They're a both telescopes. Yeah, they are both telescopes. They are both in space. Hubble orbits the Earth. The astronauts could go fix it. James Webb Space Telescope is going to be a million miles away. It's going to operate mostly at infrared wavelengths of light. It's going to do mostly spectroscopy and not necessarily imaging. But James one, Webb is that, was a scientist? Yeah, well, no, that's the other thing, is oh. that James Webb, it's very rare for our, for us to name a telescope before it's launched. Right. But, um, but James Webb was actually an administrator, too. He was the first administrator of NASA. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's named after him, so basically so that Congress can't cancel it. <laughs> <laughs> so that they wouldn't cancel it for the several decades that it's been in production. Um, but now it's, it's, it's real. It's in, let's see, I think it's now in California. It was in Houston for a little while being tested. I think now it's in California. It's eventually going to be shipped to um, South America to be launched from, I believe, French Guiana in the early part of the 19, 1900s now, in the early part of 2019. What am I thinking? Um, but it's, but it's the, so the James Webb Space Telescope is going to be great for exoplanets, in particular for what's called transmission spectroscopy. Stay, stay with me here. <laughs> Instead of, so we can actually, so so transits is easy. So transits is how we detect a lot of exoplanets. We look at the star and we see the starlight dim in regular intervals. And that's because a planet happens to be passing directly between us and the star. The Kepler Space Telescope did it and found thousands of planets that way. Because they're rotating around it. So every yeah, so the, often it's going to block. Yeah, the planet is orbiting the star. The, the, that planetary system happens to be lined up so that the planets directly pass from our point of view in front of the star. And then if we want, you know, they have to have a relatively short orbit for us to be able to see them in a reasonable amount of time like we can't detect planets as far away from their star as jupiter is from our sun because we need like at least three transits or so to show that it's actually a planet and to actually measure its orbit and and its properties like that um but one of the other things that we can do once we have those transiting planets is that we can measure the size of the transit so the the amount of, by which the starlight dips because that tells us the size of the planet. Mm. But we can make that measurement at different wavelengths. Because bigger planets are going to block more. Yeah. Bigger planets are going to block more light, but then planets might look different sizes at different wavelengths of light because of different properties of their atmosphere. Wow. This is kind of the wacky thing. So if we thought about Earth, Earth is transparent to visible light. And so if we look at an Earth transit, we're going to see the Earth, we're going to measure the solid size of the Earth. We're going to measure the, the Earth from its surface, that size. If we look at the transit of the Earth in infrared light, infrared light gets blocked by the Earth's atmosphere. And so we would measure a slightly bigger Earth because we would measure the size of Earth with its atmosphere, not just the rocky surface of Earth. That's a very, very small difference because Earth is very small and our, our atmosphere is really like an onion skin. It's very, very thin. But for other exoplanets like super Earth exoplanets that we now know are very common with bigger planets and, and kind of possibly bigger atmospheres, we can use this technique to figure out what their atmospheres are like, which is super duper exciting. Um, so the James Webb Space Telescope is going to do that. There's another um, TESS satellite, it's called, is going to be launching even before that. The Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, I think is what it's called, is also going to be do doing this tr um, transiting exoplanet detection. And and that's kind of, I think, the next step in exoplanet science is is characterizing the atmospheres of these exoplanets. It's going to be huge. 
And that actually goes right into the next question. Ooh, nice. Which is great, because Ezra Froese, F-R-O-E-S-E from Facebook, wrote, what are the sort of specific things the James Webb Space Telescope will be looking at when it's in its final orbit? And what sort of questions are astronomers and cosmologists hoping to solve with the new observational data from the James Webb Space Telescope? Yeah, so the exoplanets is one huge thing. Like, definitely the exoplanets, the atmospheres of the exoplanets especially. Um, And then another thing that we were talking about before is also looking kind of even further back in time. So the James Webb Space Telescope, because it's it's so much bigger than Hubble, the Hubble mirror was about two and a half meters across, and the James Webb Space telescope is about six and a half meters across it's it's going to unfold in space and it's not even a single mirror it's a segmented mirror it's so cool like i'm just i'm i i really wish they would put like a gopro on it when they launched it because the sun shield is gonna uh is gonna unfurl in space and the mirror is gonna unfold in space they have like a practice session online because they must like, have tried to make sure it works at least on the ground. So they have, so um, Northrop Grumman is doing a lot of the subcontracting for it. And so Northrop Grumman has a great video that shows how it's going to happen. Um, and I've heard from people who were not supposed to say things Ooh, that the, uh, yeah, the <laughs> unfolding of the mirror has apparently happened before. Oh, This is also like when we, when astronomers got the Hubble Space Telescope, there were already Hubble Space Telescopes in orbit around the Earth. They were just looking down instead of looking up. And in, and in fact, like we now, you know, it's it's classified, but we now know that this we know that this is true because the government at some point was like, oh, we have these extra Hubble mirrors lying around. Would you guys like them? Like to the astronomer community, like and the support structure and everything. And so that's one of our another upcoming telescope is actually like a leftover Hubble mirror from from the downward looking Hubbles. I love that. On one hand, you you have to respect the government who's like, you know what? We don't want this to go to waste. Yeah. And on the other hand, be like, maybe you're seek- the, maybe <laughs> letting the whole world know anymore. that you have these is a bad idea. Yeah. Well, they're, you know, they're not like weapons of mass destruction or anything like that. They're instruments of mass surveillance. I, I, who knows what they were using them for? <laughs> Space Force. <Okay>. Yeah. <laughs> I can't. I I feel like as soon as Donald Trump said Space Force, I'm like, there's going to be a theme song. Oh there's going to be sweatshirts. As long as there's like only those things, like. <laughs> I, mm. Um, so the so the James Webb Space Telescope, in addition to seeing the exoplanets, is also going to be able to because it's so much bigger, it's going to be able to see very very faint distant objects, and so hopefully look at like the very first galaxies in the universe, maybe even find evidence of the first stars that formed at the very very beginning of the universe. It's going to be able to kind of look further back in time than any other telescope because it's it's built to do that, which is really exciting. But then it hits a wall, like as we said before. Yeah, it can't go back a, further limit, than the but... than the cosmic microwave background radiation. Yeah. But there's still a lot between us and like the most distant things that we know about that are the very brightest things because we can see those the furthest away. And with James Webb, we'll be able to study kind of the dimmer, more distant things. Cool. Yeah. All right. Next question. Dealer's choice. We actually are going to run out of time for this. Yeah, we're going to do a dealer's choice in the next segment. We're going to take a short break. We'll have more Astro 101 when StarTalk All-Stars returns. Welcome back to Star Talk All Stars. I'm Emily Rice, your All Star host of the evening, and joining me in the studio is my comedic co-host Harrison Greenbaum. Hello. We've been talking all about astronomy and taking some cosmic queries from our listeners. So let's see what else we have. Yes, our dealer's choice says this one: Mike Rush from Facebook. As of late, there has been a discussion about the validity of black holes. That sounds oh. like any of those newspaper articles where they read three people angry on Twitter and they're like, <laughs> people are angry. Yeah. 
But there's been a discussion, and if it is proven that black holes do not, in fact, exist, then what other explanation could there be for the jets, Doppler shifts, and other phenomena yeah. at the center of galaxies? Is there another possibility? I, like, no. I, I, I think black holes are as, as wild as black holes are. Like, I don't really think there's any controversy. It's like, a, yeah, black holes, like, as much as we can prove, I mean, how do you... How do you want? What else? Do we get a hashtag fake news question? Yeah. What else? What other proof? I mean, the proof is very like we can we can measure their masses. We know that the curvature of space time of of that mass within that radius, you know, it 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 breaks space time, and so it has to be a black hole. We can measure the Doppler shift, like he said. That's this gravitational redshift where anything leaving the vicinity of the black hole has to lose energy, and so the light becomes redshifted. We can measure that even around not black holes, but around like dense. Objects like white dwarfs and neutron stars, the jets around them. I was friends like, with a white dwarf. He's very funny. <laughs> they prefer white little people. Oh, sorry. God. Oh no. Right. That's not the accepted term at all. Yes. Um, but the fair enough. <laughs> the, but the black. But it's real. Like the black holes. You know that. Like we're not going to be able to reach out and touch one. We're not going to be able to like build one in a lab or anything like that. But really, everything. Everything makes sense. Like all the pieces fit together, and so we do think black holes exist and are real things. They're they're wacky. Like we, you know, we we can't necessarily know what happens inside of them, but we can still mathematically describe it. So, so take that, Mike Rush. (laughs) We appreciate your question. Um, We talked about the telescopes. Oh, this is good, Mike Moss, M A A S. So either his name is Moss or he's a typo in his name. (laughs) How is it that we are able to study the properties of distant planets? For example, the Trappist One system having rocky planets, the temperature in the atmosphere. How accurate are these studies? Oh yeah, that's a good question. Um, Always ask that. Like, what's your error bars? That's a way to get a scientist. Like, if a scientist is ever saying blah 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 blah, say, well, what's the uncertainty on that? And then they go blah. Or ask them, what about magnetic fields? (laughs) When you're Grows up, you should just give error bars. You, he'd be like, What should I wear to school? And you're like, I'm gonna say blue, but there's an error bar there, yeah, yeah, like, a like red or an orange, yeah, shirt plus or minus pants. Like, yeah. we, you know, we, we, we gotta set a low bar. Um, but the so the it's a good question because these planets also, you know, you see the picture, we make these press release images, and a lot of work goes into that. But I like to call them real estate photos. It's like, you know, <laughs> when you get to see the apartment, it's not going to look like that. And that, you know, the wide angle lens and the, the lighting and maybe like the Photoshop furniture or something like that. <laughs> you know, everything is clean, everything's put under the bed or in the closets. Like, but the, 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 we still figure out as much as we can about the exoplanets, but the way that we do it, we're inherently limited. And so in the previous segment, we described a little bit of the transmission spectroscopy that gets us at the atmosphere. But that only works for very, very special cases of planets and also very careful measurements that we can make. Um, most of the planets, so the the largest number of planets that we have that are detected with this transmission spectro or the the transit method from the Kes- Kepler Space Telescope, Kepler doesn't have any filters. It just works at one big long wavelength. <laughs> and <laughs> it, it just has one big long bandpass of, of visible light. Make a joke out of it. <laughs> I don't know, um, but it, but so it, so it doesn't see differences, and in that it can only measure the size of the planet, and that you can't measure the mass from a transit detection. The cool thing is, is that if you have more than one planet in the system, and if they're close enough together that they kind of interact gravitationally enough, the timing of their transits might change. Like instead of one year, one year, one year, like exactly, it might be one. 
and then a little bit behind and one then a little bit faster because of where the other planets are in the system are tugging on that planet and making the transit happen a little bit earlier or a little bit later than you would expect. And so if there is a multi-planet system, you can use this technique that's called the transit timing technique to, to figure out the masses of the planets. Um, or what else you can do is measure the Doppler shift of the star itself and so that's this going to show you that the star is moving back and forth because of the planets orbiting it. Mm. And so this is also a kind of a separate method for detecting planets called the wobble method or the Doppler shift method. It's kind of a lot more expensive. And so it was the kind of observationally expensive. It takes a lot longer to make the observations. And so the very first planets around other stars, around sun-like stars, I should say, were made using this Doppler shift method. But now the transit method is a lot quicker to find a lot more planets. But still, then you can go back and do the spectra. And that's how you get the mass information. And so if you have the mass information and the size information, then you could put that together and say, something about the density or the bulk composition and so that's how we get that the trappist planets are like rocky planets because the trappist system is so cool it's very tightly packed the planets are very close together and so they do tug on one another's orbits and so they can get mass constraints using that method and so we can do a radius we can do a mass um, we can get a bulk composition and they're starting to do the measurements to figure out about the atmospheres which is super cool wow yeah, it's still not like it's, you know, it's still like number plus or minus another number that then gets turned into right. that pretty real estate picture. But the great thing is that there is a lot of stuff that we do understand going into that real estate picture. It's super cool. And even if it was like Earth-like, where we're like, cool, this this could support life or it could support us. These are so far away that... Well, not e- that's the exciting <laughs> thing about that. the TRAPPIST system. Oh. Yeah, the TRAPPIST system, I mean, it's only 40 light years away. <laughs> so we're not going to go there, but it's also like, 40 light years at least it's you know it's not a hundred light years it's not a thousand light years it's 40 light years and so you could potentially you know send a signal and say hey is anybody there they would get it in 40 years and then it would come back to us you know if they said yeah we're here what do you want you know like 40 years it later in a lifetime yeah a, you know a, a nice human lifetime yeah i hope you're not only doing that but if one person does it, that would be totally great. Like, that's relatively close. for And uh, so many planets, you know, we're still figuring out, but seven planets, they're all pretty small. Like, three of them might be in the habitable zone. Maybe even more of them are in the habitable zone. And that's really, that system is called TRAPPIST-1 because it was the first system found by that particular telescope. Like, literally wow. the first, like... You know, they either they got super lucky the first time and hit pay dirt, or these systems are all over there in our backyard, and we just have to find more. It's super cool. That'd be awesome if we just started getting pictures from an alien planet, and then we realized 40 years later that they're just dick pics. I know, right? Like, best case scenario. (laughs) Like, still, we get a picture. Yeah, that we know they exist. Better than just the dots that we know they're like. We're like, oh, God, what are they going to say? You're like, can we be friends? And then we have to wait 40 then, years to find out. And then it stops. <laughs> like, and we just get a sad face. We're like, no. That was what a other questions question. do we have? Yeah. Uh, we did the exoplanets. Um, let's see. Yeah, we, we really, oh, this Nobody's is this one. about Newton's laws, yeah. No Newton questions. <laughs> um, but we did have this question about ripples. Oh, Cameron Peters from Facebook says, are the ripples in space time created by merging black holes experienced differently if you are much closer, say within a couple of light years versus the few billion that we've been detecting? 
Oh, we have been detecting those black hole collisions creating that ripple. Yes, this is so huge. Gravitational waves. This yeah. is like this is enormous. Also a Nobel Prize winning thing. It literally like it's fantastic. Like so Kip Thorne now has his Nobel Prize along with three other white dudes, two other white dudes. Um we and it literally opened up a window for observing the universe. It's literally like another information carrier. It's another signal from the universe that we hadn't been able to detect before LIGO was online and operational. um, LIGO, the L-I-G-O, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. And LASER is also an acronym, so it's kind of a nested acronym. Um, But it, it was built to detect this tiny tiny motion these lasers are bouncing back and forth and if the gravitational wave comes through in the in one particular direction like one laser gets stretched and the other one doesn't basically it's and and then it has to also be detected they have different locations where they have these detectors so the the ones that are online right now one of them i believe is in louisiana and the other one is in washington state and so they both have to detect the signal it's kind of like um um earthquake observatories where you have to detect it from two different places in order to f- triangulate it and figure out where it came from and so they both detected the very similar signal and with the delay that you would expect between the two things um and so the, it's it literally is a ripple in the fabric of space time like predicted by einstein and general relativity and detected for the first time in the last couple of years but then detected again and we can figure out what mass had to had to collide to cause this ripple in space time i forget what the question was i was so into it like, no but that's awesome amazing his question is so these ripples which we detected are they experienced differently if you're closer to them oh say, yeah in a couple of years versus we're, we're detecting them on earth yes we're detecting them on earth um like i want to say yes because like they'd be easier to detect because it literally is like a wave and so it spreads out and so be almost stronger time. as you get yeah close. so it, so the closer you are the stronger it's going to be that said this is lo- like you know it, it's it's a gravitational wave it's extremely difficult to detect like the the motion um, a friend of mine just gave me this great analogy that if the distance of um that we're trying to measure so the lasers measure these distances and if the distance that we're trying to measure is between here and chicago um so new york city and chicago oh what was it from real pizza to not real pizza (laughs) take that deep dish you're you're measuring like a tiny tiny change in distance like the i want to say the width of the nucleus of an atom in, and you're doing it over the course of Chicago to New York. Yeah, over the distance between Chicago wow. and New York. So if you got really tiny, close to it, yeah. it still would be yeah, maybe it's not even a, perceptible? Uh, like, yeah, I don't know. Depending on how you would measure, it would be easier to measure because it would be a bigger thing. But we also, you know, we, the the merging gravitational or um, the merging black holes are happening a lot of different places, but still pretty far away, like in these very distant galaxies. And so um, it's... Yeah, I don't. I don't think it's gonna. It, you know, it's not gonna kill you if you're right there. It might like knock you off your surfboard or something like that if you're surfing. It's breaking time too. It's it's in space time. Yeah. So I does it, we measure it in space, but it's literally it ripples through space time. Yeah, that I don't. Is, I don't know if it changes. Trippy, time. Like, I don't know <laughs> that it changes our perception of time the way that because. Yeah, I feel like you wanted an answer in which, like, standing right next to it means like, gonna, like you go through you seven away. different time periods, yeah. and, which would be cool. Uh, let's talk about dark matter. Um, what are the most prominent? Because we've been talking about all these different technological advancements. Yeah, the new telescope, the thing that detected this. Uh, 
Paul Kragenbrink from Facebook wrote, what are the most promising methods or experiments currently in the works that will help us identify dark matter? Uh, Is there anything that we're building for that? Yeah, there's kind of, there's particle experiments. They're really like particle physics detectors. Um, I want to say that the, that the, biggest one and one of the most promising ones is at MIT and I want to say it involves I just, the second best school in Cambridge <laughs> take that no outside of Boston um, it's a it's a particle detector it really is very similar to these neutrino detectors where it's a new it's a new way of detecting it um, that's all I, I honestly don't know like it's one of those things where it's like right at the edge of my understanding and every once in a while I see a really good talk at a science conference or something where I understand it and I'm like oh man I understand it and then literally five minutes later I walk out of the room and it's gone <laughs> like I just don't I don't get it anymore but it is like we're we're on the verge of measuring at least particles like detecting particles that are dark matter candidates the these things called axions and so the it's it's there it's on we're on the cusp of it i feel like i go to magic conventions <laughs> so i feel like astrophysics conventions and magic conventions are the same in that there's far too many old white men <laughs> yes 70 year olds just sleeping in their it's chair getting better but they're still probably both pretty fun like oh absolutely a, we have a sometimes our conventions like overlap our conventions are like our our very serious astronomy research conferences where <laughs> right. i still like dress like this um the, you know wearing my thematic startorialist clothing but even like sometimes they overlap at the hotel or the convention center like with these other things and so it's like oh is that person in costume like an astronomer or not and it's great when you like can't really tell that's kind of fun are there cool kids like the thing about a magic invention is there are people who are like magic famous if you're at a like an astrophysics I mean, I'm sure Neil is probably like. Oh yeah, there's Neil. There's people. Popular. Yeah, the Nobel Prize winners. I mean, John Mather, like Brian Schmidt. He's in Australia, so I don't know if he comes to our conferences. But yeah, yeah, I'd say Mike Brown, Pluto Killer, is kind of there's there's definitely <laughs> astronomer famous people. Yeah, it's so funny to picture them because they're probably not not all of them super social in real life, but they're they're like the bell of the ball. <laughs> Everyone wants to buy them drinks. I know, right? Yeah, it's it's so pretty. We get we we get. There should be a whole, like, we should do a whole nother episode about how fun and cool and hip astronomers are. Man, when I came out of my mouth, it didn't sound super convincing. No, I would go to one of those conventions in a second. That sounds <laughs> unbelievable. Awesome. So we've covered a lot here. I think we've learned oh, about so Astronomy much. 101. I think I was right. Nobody asked about Newton's laws or Kepler's laws. Or nope. Anything. And a lot of people asked about black holes. Yeah. Black holes, exoplanets. I'm down with that. It's pretty yeah. cool. I'm very lucky. And space to, like, smell. Have this job. Yeah. That one surprised me. I think raspberries, I'm going to check on the way home. <laughs> I hope it is. Everybody look at up. You've been listening to Star Talk All Stars. Thanks to my comedic co-host Harrison Greenbaum for being here today. Thanks for having me. I've been your host Emily Rice and until next time, keep asking questions. 